Hey y'all, this week at RUF Large Group, I tapped the record button, but not hard enough, and it did not record. So I'm re-recording for you who are listening on the podcast this week, and it'll be a little different, but I hope you still enjoy, hope it edifies you and helps you to see and savor Jesus. So without further ado, uh, I think most of you know, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the campus minister at Washington and Lee. And the one thing I really want you to know about me is that I'm not a good person. But Jesus loves me, and he loves you, and that changes everything. And tonight we're going to see how Jesus meets us in our fear. You know, why are we afraid? What are we afraid of? What difference does having God as our Father make to that fear? And how can we faithfully respond to what Jesus has done for us? So, you see my three points. First, our fear. Second, our Father. Third, our faithfulness. Let's read the passage. So this is Romans 8. Verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit of God you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people who are listening on the podcast this week, Lord, that you will bless them, that you'll encourage them, that you'll encourage them, that you'll help me (coughs) to... preach the second sermon of the night with my voice, and uh, Jesus, that you will help us to see how you meet us in in our fear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point one, our fear. Let me tell you about this scary time that I had once in Northern California. Some of you know my former field of expertise was being an outdoor guide, and so I was guiding this little group uh, in the mountains of Northern California, And I had been told that there are no rattlesnakes above 7,000 feet. I had been told. But we go walking on this trail above 7,000 feet. And somebody steps over a rock on the trail and we hear... And we looked under there and sure enough, big mean old rattler hanging out ready to bite us. So that was a little scary. We kept on going and make it to a... Uh, a granite dome, a big rocky hill of rock with boulders on top. And it had been sunny that day, uh, so the rock was nice and warm, perfect spot to make camp. And uh, also the only flat spot, really, um, the only camping option, as it turned out. And so we lay out our sleeping pads, our, our sleeping bags, no tents, because it was really good weather. Um, Northern California, sunny, not going to rain. And we're getting all cozy, and the sun starts to go down, and we start to hear from beneath every boulder rattlesnakes just all over the place. Uh, and some of these boulders are within a few feet of where my little, you know, these are middle school kids that I'm guiding out in these woods. And I'm just terrified that one of them is going to get bit and die, and we're not going to be able to evacuate because we're in a wilderness area. Uh it was terrifying. It was really scary. So I just yelled out to all of them, stay in your sleeping bags. Nobody move. 
And if you feel a snake in your bag, then yell for me. <laughs> and I didn't really have a plan for what I would do if that happened, but it didn't, thankfully. Everybody survives. It was scary. And tonight we're going to talk about what we are afraid of. What are the rattlers in your life lurking beneath the boulders, lurking around the corners that you maybe feel or hear but don't even see? What are you afraid of? So for me, I'm afraid of failure. Many things. That's one of them. I'm afraid of failure. So big mistakes, big fear, little mistakes, little fear, but I'm afraid of it. And so I live my life trying not to fail, trying really hard, probably because I want to succeed. Yes, but also because I don't want to fail. I'm afraid of it. Some people are afraid that they'll never be truly known and loved. Some of you are afraid of your secrets being found out, failing a class, not finding a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. Some of you are terrified you'll never live up to your parents' expectations. Some of you are anxious all the time. You're not even sure why you're anxious. It's one of the hard parts about anxiety. I've experienced that. Had years of my life where I was anxious and just didn't really know why. Just felt that anxiety every morning, every day. Some of you have PTSD from terrible past experiences. Some of you more religious folk might be afraid you'll fall away from the faith someday or do something that causes you to lose your salvation. Yeah, and so all these fears, they, they lurk around us like rattlesnakes beneath the boulders of the campsite of your life. Under every future possibility lurking around every corner, we feel the fear. So what do we make of all this fear that we see in our own hearts? How can it be explained? The diagnosis of God's word in our passage is that fear comes from what's in authority over you. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit of slavery is a spirit of fear. Why? Because slaves have an authority over them, a master who can treat them however he wants. Sometimes very cruelly, it's terrifying. In the Bible's diagnosis, we have a master like that. When we think that we're our own master, our own boss, that we're in control of our life and our destiny, that we're you know, skillfully navigating the waters of life at WNL with our work hard, play hard lifestyle and just the right mix of studying and socializing and maybe some partying thrown in there or some outdoors, we think that we're really good at managing our lives sometimes. But if we think that we're the only authority over ourselves, we're actually, in the Bible's estimation, deceived. Because even though we do have, of course, real ability to make choices and decisions, we're living under an authority that conditions our decisions. And what is that authority? The passage names the flesh, or the sinful nature and rebellion against God. It names the deeds of the body, actions that are against God's law. And it names the spirit of slavery, which is about being a debtor to the flesh, a debtor to the sin nature. Just having to do whatever your body, mind, heart wants to do. And so sometimes we think that's freedom, being able to do whatever we want instead of what somebody else, some other authority wants. But what if your own body, your own mind and heart have been hijacked by something that doesn't want what's good for you? If that was true, if that was true, big claim, if it was true, you would find yourself making the same mistakes over and over. You would find yourself getting stuck in these habits that you do not want to keep doing, but you can't stop. You'd find yourself getting into the same binds over and over, hurting people over and over in the same ways, 
getting wound tighter and tighter with anxiety over and over. No wonder we're afraid. This is a scary world. This is where our fear comes from. These are the rattlesnakes. And whatever your fear is, one of the reasons Jesus came was to deal with it, to disarm the authority, to give us a new authority, a better authority, and to coax us out of our fear. This is what Psalm 23 is talking about when it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. So how can we walk through the fearful times in our lives without fear, but instead with calm, with joy? Point two, our Father. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this is saying that when God the Holy Spirit gives you faith and repentance, he also makes you a child of God and begins to build in you the awareness and the confidence that he is your father, such that we can begin to cry, Abba, Father. Abba is this Aramaic word. It's not a formal word for father, like father, for instance. It's a, a family word, like dada or daddy. It's um, the language of family, but it's also the language of fear. Okay, we see this in a couple of different ways. It's the language of fear because it's the word for father, Jesus used when he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, when he was in the valley of the shadow of death, literally seeing his death on the cross coming. It says in Mark 14, he was greatly distressed and troubled. He told his friends, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he said, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In the darkest time in Jesus's life, this is the word he uses. It's the word for father, the language of fear, what we call out, how we call out to our father when we're afraid. Sometimes I'll be lying asleep in my bed at night and I'll, one of my three kids, I've got three, two five-year-olds and a three-year-old and upon occasion, one of them will have a nightmare and what they will do is cry out, daddy. And I hear them and I go right to them and I wrap them in a big hug, and I just say, Daddy's here. Daddy's here. It's okay. Daddy's here. And when I do that, it takes them about 10 seconds flat to fall asleep again. It does not take long because that's what they want. That's all they want is to know that I'm there because if I'm there, they're protected. They're safe from any monsters or nightmares. It is all good. And God sends his Holy Spirit into our heart to envelop us in a bear hug of his love, such that we might let down our God and respond with Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. That we could have a relationship with him that, that that's that intimate, that close. Some of us, some of you, listen to this podcast, have a troubled relationship with your father. I mean, I do too, in a way. I loved my dad when he was alive, but he's not alive anymore. I lost him almost a year ago. Maybe some of you are still in the grief of losing your dad, like I am. Some fathers inflict terrible wounds, right? 
whether physical or mental, emotional, even spiritual, they inflict wounds on their children. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but it happens. Some fathers abandon their families, either physically or just emotionally. You know, maybe he was around all the time, but you just don't know him. You don't know who he is because he was a, a provider and he was around, but he maybe didn't cherish your heart like he should have or let you into his, his heart. And some, from some fathers are such exacting taskmasters that their kids only ever uh, get to know them and understand who they are as an authority, as a taskmaster, you know, who only really responds positively when you're doing well with school or sports or something else. So our fathers sometimes fail us, and it is natural for us to see God through the lens of your own dad. It's natural to shrink God into that box for us and to assume that he'll treat you the same way that your earthly dad did. But God, he doesn't fit into any box that you put him in. There's a lot of ways that's true, but our passage focuses in just one way. He's the kind of father who wants us to be quick to cry out to him. He wants to hear our voices. He wants to know our hearts and hear whether we're afraid or joyful. He wants us to call him Dada, especially when we're afraid. In that moment, as in all other moments, he's with you. He's present with you. Not physically, but truly and spiritually by the Holy Spirit. He's there with you. That's what our passage says. That's what Psalm 23 says. I will fear no evil for you are with me. For some of you, your dad being with you was a scary thing. Not so with our Heavenly Father. And so if this is true, if this could be true, that our Father is this good, that He loves us this much, that He is this present with us and wants an intimate relationship with us, what difference would that make in our lives? How are we called to respond to this Father who adopts us into His family, gives us everything that's his and invites us to call him father. So point three, our faithfulness. I want to start this point with a story. Uh, like I said, I was in Houston. Um, maybe I didn't say that, but I was in Houston this weekend and I met with this wonderful man who is a good friend. He actually graduated from Washington and Lee a long time ago. Uh, he's a good friend. He's uh, one of the financial supporters of this ministry, making it possible that it can happen. And so I got dinner with him and was just, um, you know, hearing about how he's doing and sharing about the ministry and what God's doing at WNL. And um, it was so good because he is such a joyful and a peaceful, calm, non-anxious person. Um, even though he's actually got some really hard things going on in his life right now, this man is one of the best. Uh, one of the best heart surgeons really in the world. Um, he has uh, invented procedures uh, for you know certain you know, issues of the heart um, that no one else, well, people know how to do them now, but he's the one that invented them. Uh, he's got the experience to where some of the hardest cases now come to him and he performs these surgeries. So he literally holds people's life in his hands every day, sometimes multiple times a day. These people that are in very bad shape Sometimes he operates, a lot of times, most of the time he operates on them and they're healed. You know, they have years more to live. Sometimes they're in such bad shape that they die. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be him 
and to hold people's lives in my hands and to feel the weight of that, whether they live or die. But the beautiful thing about this guy, like I said, so joyful, so calm, not anxious at all, just asking me about my life, sharing about God's faithfulness and his goodness in his life in the midst of some hard things. And it was a beautiful picture of a man who is both at the top of his field, but he's not living for that. He's truly connected to the Father heart of God. He knows God is his Father, and he is at peace. He's full of joy. And it's been hard. He would tell you that. But he would say, and he told me this, the life lived with Jesus is just the best life there is. Nothing else compares. Nothing else is worth it. It's the best life there is. And I want that life for me. I want it for you. I want us to be so connected to the Father's heart that we can live lives, whatever our lives are like, with calm and joy and peace, just resting in the love of our Father for us. So what does that look like? What what does God call us to as our Father? Verse 12, So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So as God's children who've been set free from slavery to the sin nature, slavery to doing whatever we think is right, which is actually not freedom, as people who've been set free, we owe God a debt. He gave us life. We owe him our life. It's right for us to live our lives in obedience to him. And that looks like putting to death the deeds of the body, which is Interesting language. Again, the deeds of the body are just those things that we feel justified in thinking, feeling, and doing on the basis of them feeling right. Okay, so like, I do this, you do this every day. I can gossip about them a little. That feels right. I can be sexually active outside of marriage. It feels right. I can cheat a little on a test here or there. You know, violate the honor system, no one will find out. No big deal. It feels okay to do that. I can break the law by drinking a little before I'm 21. That feels right. The list goes on. We could populate this list with hundreds and hundreds of things that we justify, that we do, simply because it feels right. And for us, that feels like enough to make it okay. And the Bible calls these the deeds of the body. Not the deeds of the Spirit of God, who wants what is good for us, who gives us life, but the deeds of really death. And these are where Christians are called to get violent. Unlike several religions, Christians are called to never get violent towards other people unless in the service of a legitimate executive branch of government, like the military or like the police force. That's in God's word. That's okay. So we can support and celebrate people who are serving in the military or police force, things like that. But for all other Christians, there is no biblical grounds for any Christian to go on a private crusade of violence against anyone or any institution, no matter how bad they are, no matter how terrible they are, how much you disagree with them. Like this is Christians don't do that. We're not called in the Bible to get violent against people just because we disagree with them, even if they're bad people. So our violence, though, there is a place for violence in the Christian life. It's just that we reserve all the violence for the deeds of the flesh. For We turn it inward. We wage war against the sins in our own lives. We're called to go on crusade against the sin in our own hearts by putting to death the deeds of the body, by killing sin. And man, I could talk for hours, days, about 
all the different ways that can look, right? And there's like there's a lot of complicated stuff there. It is hard. And it doesn't look the same with every different kind of sin. Very different to kill the sin of looking at pornography than to kill the sin of being angry, right? Like just having rage inside and like, how do you repent of rage? We're called to do that. But what does that look like? So we can have those conversations, but we should never make permission for our sin and assume that it's just like, okay, it's not. It's killing us. And we don't owe that debt to the sin nature anymore. We owe a debt to God, the debt of our life, which calls us to put to death the deeds of the body. So we fight as children of the king, not from fear. We don't fight from fear, but as children of the king. We get violent not out of hate, but out of love for the God who loves us. We do hard things like killing sin for the sake of the Savior who did the hardest thing imaginable for us and gave us this thing, this adoption into God's family, this love of the Father that is just there and just true no matter what. That's the foundation. That's what. That's the source of power. That's the roots of the tree that bears fruit with killing sin. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Part of this suffering that's being talked about is this. It's putting sin to death. It hurts. It's hard. You have to give up stuff. But we suffer this pain, whether it's the pain of saying no to temptation or of persecution or of just living in a broken world, we suffer it with our eyes on Jesus because we're heirs to glory. We are heirs with Jesus. We're destined for glory. There's a lot of ways that I could have concluded this sermon, um, and I actually drew a big X through most of those right before I preached it. And I wanted to tell you this story instead because I think for me, it hits home the most. Um, as I've told some of you, some of you may know, my dad... Uh, he dealt with mental illness his entire life, severe mental illness his entire life. And he was a wonderful dad. Loved my dad so much. He was a great dad. But the whole time he carried this really hard mental illness. And it got worse and worse, especially in recent years. And uh, ultimately, it led to my dad's death. It cost him his life um, just last December, which has been, you know, it led to this whole season of grief for me and my family, which is really hard. And I know some of y'all are in seasons of grief about other stuff. Um, but I bring this up to say, to point out this, this tangible reality about this for my dad, he, his mental illness eventually in his last couple of years seemed to cost him everything that he loved. Uh, he could no longer enjoy things that he had taken great joy in, in the past. He loved his work, could no longer find joy in his work. He loved the outdoors and hiking and mountains, and he lived in a beautiful place, but he could no longer enjoy that. Just couldn't, couldn't even go on a hike. Uh, he loved his family. He really he took great delight in his family, me, my siblings, uh, our spouses, my kids, his grandkids. But uh, the last time we visited with him, he, you can see it on his face. He just he could not find joy in that anymore. What a tragedy. And yet the beautiful thing was, is that uh, after he died, you know, we look on his laptop and we see these, you know, letters. And uh, he, 
In these letters, it is clear that even when life had gone totally dark for my dad, the light of his faith was still on. Every other part of his life, every other thing had been taken from him that he enjoyed and believed in and loved, but his faith was still there. He still believed that he was going to a better place. He still believed that he was a child of the king. That was his only hope, literally his only hope. The only thing he could hang on to was Jesus because everything else had just gone dark for him. And that to me bore such witness to my soul. You know, I had prayed for my dad to be healed and he wasn't, God didn't heal him. And yet the fact that the devil could not take that faith from my father, he could not take that love of Jesus from my father. Jesus said, no, that part's for me. That part's reserved. And he kept that part safe. And so my dad died as a Christian, as a man who had faith. And he will be resurrected because he has been reserved by Jesus. God, Jesus was faithful to him. God was faithful to him as his father, even in the midst of his mental illness, to keep him in his family. And so that's a sad story. I realize I'm ending this sermon on a sad story, but I think it's immensely hopeful because no matter how hard your life gets, no matter how much the things that we're afraid of threaten to overwhelm us or literally do overwhelm us, God is still faithful to his children because he's adopted you. You belong to him. He will never give up on you because he's your father. So that's a God that is worth loving. It's a God that's worth obeying. It's a God that is worth not playing, not taking half measures with your sin and just being permissive with your sin and pretending like it's not going to hurt you. It is killing you. It is taking your eyes off the Father who will never take his eyes off you and who loves you so much and wants what's best for you. So let's, together, let's learn to love him as our Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, for all my friends who are listening, I just pray, Jesus, that you would open up our hearts to you you would bear witness in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that you're our Father, that you love us. Help us to grab onto you, responding to the way you have grabbed onto us in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.